Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church Sermon Archive. We are glad that you have decided to listen. We hope each and every sermon will exalt God, strengthen God's people, and lead the lost to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at our website at www.trinityweatherford.net under the Contact Us tab. And now, here is Pastor Skyler Spradlin opening God's Word. Please open your Bibles to Isaiah. That's an Old Testament book. So if you're unfamiliar with your Bible, turn it to just about the middle, a little left of center of your Bible. Hopefully you'll enter into Psalms. And if you've done that, keep going to your right. You'll go through Proverbs. You'll come to Isaiah. And we'll be in chapter 42 in just a moment. If you're in any of the other Old Testament um, books or letters that are closer to the New Testament, minor prophets, uh, Joel, Jonah, Habakkuk, Hosea, any of those guys, or the bigger ones, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Jeremiah, Lamentations, keep going to your left, you'll come into Isaiah. Today will be um, pretty abnormal for us in that by our standards, we're going to consider a very sparse amount of Scripture. Uh, normally, we land in a passage and try to understand that passage. Uh, but today, since we're looking at a subject, and a subject that's rather unique, uh, we'll be looking at less Scripture than is normal. So bear with me in that. I want to begin this morning by drawing your mind to one of my favorite things in, in my free time, what free time I, I have, and that's the consideration or contemplation of the universe. Now, some people um, are really struck by things like the details of a spider web or the details of a flower or the beauty of a sunset or a beauty of a sunrise. For me, it's the consideration of stars. Uh, I like to stargaze. Now, I know nothing about the stars. Uh, I have no real understanding of the universe in the sense that you know, I'm not an astronomer or scientist or, or anything of that nature, but I do like to gaze up into the cosmos and contemplate the beauty and the grandeur that's all around us. You consider creation outside of this globe and you consider the vastness of the universe around us and it's really magnificent, isn't it? Every time humanity invents some new telescope that lets us see further into the universe, we discover one constant truth, that there's still farther to go. Anytime we send out a satellite or some sort of uh, technological probe to, to understand even just our galaxy, there comes a point where we lose communication because it goes so far out into the vastness of the space around us. When we look into the universe, we're, we're looking at millions, if not billions, of stars, planets, galaxies. The sheer distance, the sheer size, magnitude, and volume of the universe is measured in things in volumes like light years, which is the speed of light, how far it goes in a year's time. Just for reference, light travels just a little bit over 186,000 miles per second. Now how far that light travels in a year's time is how we have to measure things in the universe. Most objects in the cosmos are multiples, if not hundreds of light years apart. I like to think on such things. I like my mind to wander in that realm. Because as expansive as my mind can go, and that's not very much, but as expansive as it can go, the universe still keeps going. As much as I can wonder the beauty that I can behold, there's still more to behold. 
In fact, I would say there is nothing else that's at least observable in all of creation that dwarfs the hum humanity experience more than the universe. Just a glimpse into the sky and we are reminded of how small we are. And at the same time, how valuable we are. Because of all of the expanses of the heavens and the vastness of the universe, humanity is God's unique creation made in His image. Nothing else bears that title. And nothing else bears the relationship that we get to have with God. So I like to stargaze. I like to consider the vastness of space. And I like to consider its beauty and its wonder because it forces me every time to realize that in all of its beauty, in all of its expanse, in all of its wonder, there's still one who is greater. That the universe, in all of its grandeur, screams constantly, there is one greater than me. There's one greater than this. There's one with more beauty and more splendor and more grandeur and more glory. The Bible tells us this very thing in Psalm chapter 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. You see, the very purpose of the beauty of the universe is to scream and point out that there is one with more beauty. That the creation doesn't have as much glory as the Creator. The Creator has always more glory than the creation. And as beautiful and as mind-blowing and mind-boggling and wonderful as creation may be at times, there's still one who is bigger, stronger, more glorious. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, Paul says this very same thing. He's talking about humanity apart from Christ, apart from redemption. He says, What can be known about God is plain to them, humanity in general. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. I tell you all of that to come to today's subject and say, take the best thing that you can in your mind. For me, it's stargazing. It's considering the universe, considering the cosmos. The most beautiful, best expansive, powerful, grand thing you can hold in our finite minds and then realize God is infinitely greater. Infinitely more glorious. And that leads me into today's subject. We are still considering the five principles of the Protestant Reformation, the five solas of the Reformation. Sola is a Latin term that means alone or single or solo. We've looked at Scripture alone. We've looked at grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Today we consider the fifth and final one, glory to God alone. Two weeks ago I began looking at these five uh, principles or teachings of the Reformation that emerged out of the Reformation. And I said, we're beginning with the pillars of Christianity or the guard of the front door of the Christian faith. And that was Scripture alone. If we're going to be orthodox to uh, the teaching of the Scriptures, the orthodox to the Christian faith, if we're going to rightly hold the Christian faith, then we must hold to Scripture alone. Now, this Bible is God's Word. It's authoritative and it's sufficient. And it's the final rule for life and faith. Now that protects Christianity up front. That, that protects what Christianity is. That defines Christianity. And so if you're going to be a Christian, you have to enter through the guard of the front door. The Scripture alone is our revelation of God. It tells us who we are. tells us of salvation and how to be right with God. But I also said two weeks ago that there's a guard at the back door. And the guard at the back door 
is the overarching rally cry of the entire Reformation. It's the one who keeps Christians in their proper place. Keeps us from wandering out into philosophies and arguments and ideas and thoughts. It's the one that governs the other four teachings of the Reformation. It's the one that governs all Christian doctrine, all Christian teaching, all Christian conviction, and it's the glory of God. Everything we do and everything we believe and everything that makes us who we are as God's people boils down to the single rally cry of glory to God only. Glory to God alone. That singular statement is the overarching theme that informs and defines and dictates everything else about what we do and what we believe. Now, before we consider everything about all of the glory of God, not everything because we can't, but before I go any further, I want to begin this morning with a definition of the glory of God. And then I want to move to why it was important to the reformers in their time and then why this subject should be important to us today. So let's begin with a definition of the glory of God. By its sheer size of reference in the Bible alone, it's too broad of a subject to adequately articulate and understand. It's difficult to define. It's primarily difficult to define because it points to something that is unique about God Himself. That's your first understanding. That's our first understanding to answering the question, what is the glory of God? It's unique to God Himself. If we're to have a right definition, then we must realize the glory we're speaking about cannot be found Anywhere else. And this is where we find most of our confusion in defining the glory of God. It's because we use the word glory to reference all sorts of other things. For instance, we use the word glory to define things like the wonders of heaven. You might say that's glorious. The beauty of a sunset, like I said earlier. The love of a mother over her child or children. Christian relationships in the church. All of these wonderful God-given things and experiences and moments in human history bear some semblance of glory, right? And so, since we use the word so freely like that, the dictionary, English dictionary defines it in a plethora of words. It says, glory is... Great praise, honor, distinction, fame, adoration, beauty, splendor, or magnificence. FYI, if the dictionary has to come up with a definition that long, it doesn't know what it means. The glory of God is so massive, it's hard to understand, it's hard to articulate. And part of the problem is we forget that it's unique to God Himself. Though things in this life may be wonderful moments and wonderful experiences and may have a semblance of glory, they are not and in any way on the same level of God's glory. At best, at best, the most wonderful moments in human experience are vague shadows of God's glory. We're talking about a glory here, church, that is beyond compare. Something that's so radically different from even the best examples of beauty or the best examples of greatness or the best examples of wonder. We're talking about something that is fundamentally, foundationally in a category all by itself. In fact, we only have this phrase, the glory of God or God's glory or even the word glory in reference to God because God has given it to us. It's still largely mysterious. So how do we begin to understand it? Well, as I said, first, we realize it's something 
strictly unique to God Himself, and thus, we need to remove all thoughts of glory from our minds. Unless they're explicit biblical references that we find in the Scriptures. Nothing compares to God. Secondly, in that same vein, we need to understand that the glory of God is this outward expression or outward manifestation of His perfect holiness. Which means, His holiness means that He is uniquely and infinitely separate from creation. Beyond comparison, beyond difference, He is we use the word here before transcendent. We've used the word here other. He is entirely and totally other. I'll, I'll reference this verse in a, in a moment here. But Isaiah chapter 40 verse 18. Verse says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will compare with Him? And the... Answer is profoundly and unequivocally nothing. Nothing compares with Him. No one is like Him. He is totally separate. He is totally transcendent. He is totally other. Everything else in creation is finite. Everything else in creation is limited. From our best experiences to our best thoughts to our most expansive ideas, none of them reach out and come anywhere close to the stature of the greatness and otherness of God. So, to understand God's glory, we have to remove our common understanding of glory, and we have to enter into this realm of otherness. That's the best way I can think to describe God. The reason I don't say that God is different from creation is because difference implies comparison. And whatever... God is compared to is a poor comparison. So any comparison won't suffice to try to understand or contemplate or describe God. So the word different is a puny word when we try to think about the nature and being and existence of God. The best word I can think of is other. He's not just different. He's not just set apart. Our God is other. Uncommon. Unlike His creation. Beyond His creation. That's at least what I think the Bible means by the word holy. We call God holy. He is so set apart that He is other. He's not like us. It doesn't just mean that He's perfect. It doesn't just mean that He's Pure. It means totally in every single way. He is distinct. I say in every single way because the holiness of God is the one attribute of God that ties itself and attaches itself to every other attribute of God or every other characteristic of God. You see, God's not just loving. He is a holy loving God. His justice isn't just pure justice, it's a holy justice. His mercy isn't just mercy, it's holy mercy. God is holy, therefore He is radically, fundamentally, comprehensively distinct. And that church is where we begin to find a working definition of the glory of God. It's this manifestation of that very uniqueness, of that very otherness, of that very distinctness. It's this realization, this confession, this embrace of His infinite otherness. We find this in Isaiah 6. Just read this to you. We find an example of this in Isaiah 6. The angels are crying out in Isaiah's vision. Isaiah's seen into the throne room of God. The angels are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then they say this, The whole earth is full of His glory. A direct connection out of the praise of the mouths of the angels of the holiness and glory of God being brought together, bound together. 
The earth is full of God's glory as they cry out because He is a God that is holy, holy, holy. What makes God glorious? It is that He is totally, unequivocally different. Now, another thing to consider before I move further. The holiness of God is not just something outside of Him that's attached to Him like it is largely for you and I. For instance, at the very core of who we are, because of sin, we are unholy. So if we are to be holy, it must be something that comes from outside of us, put onto us or attached into us. That's why we can only say we are holy if we are in Christ. Because Christ's righteous work is what makes us holy, not ourselves. Now there may be on this side of heaven glimpses of holiness that comes about in our day-to-day lives, but for the most part, ordinarily, we're defined by a holiness, if we're to be called holy at all, and God does call us that, we're defined by a holiness that's brought from without and put upon us. But that is not the case with God. God's holiness is not something external to Him that's then pushed upon Him that now defines Him. God's holiness comes from who He is. He's not holy because holiness has happened to Him. He's holy because He is God. And God is holy. It is who He is. Now then, I hope you're keeping up. If the glory of God is the manifestation of His uniqueness and His holiness, or His otherness and His holiness, and His holiness is the very core of who He he is, then the glory of God is the manifestation of His being, of His nature, of His existence, of His purpose. A person. He is the God who is unique. He is the God who is other. He is the God who is glorious because that's who He is at His nature. By this I mean God is not glorious because of what He's done. God is glorious because of who He is. And if His acts are glorious, they're only glorious because they come from one who is at the core of who He is glorious. I want you to listen to this verse. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It's Jesus speaking in John chapter 17, verse 5. He's about to enter into His high priestly prayer as it's known as. This is what he prays. This is what he says. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I love this verse because it takes me out of my normal thinking. It puts me into realms that I don't know. It's a, a window that I call it. A window into the relationship of the Trinity and a window into existence before creation. Which is hard to wrap our minds around. But that's what's going on. Jesus is praying. He's referencing this time that He and the Father existed. Yet they existed before the foundation of the world. Before the beginning of the world. Before the creation of the world. And how did they exist? They existed in glory with one another. Shared. Complete full, unobstructed, absolute glory. But you know what's unique about that prayer of Jesus in 17.5, John 17.5? They have this glory before they had done anything. It's glory they shared before the world began. It's glory that they possessed before an ounce of creation was brought into being. And however God existed before the beginning, that's where they were 
in perfect fellowship, perfect relationship, and perfect glory. So God's glory doesn't derive from His acts. His glory derives from who He is at the core of who He is. So when we talk of the glory of God, we're talking about the manifestation of His unique other nature, otherness in His nature, in His being, in His purpose, not just in His acts. Now that leads us to conclude this. I promise I'll give you a working definition at the end. It leads us to conclude this. That if God's glory is the manifestation of His holiness, which is the reality of His nature, of who He is as a being, as a person, and if that glory doesn't derive from His acts, but derives from who He is, then in another sense, the glory of God is the manifestation of His intrinsic worth his value not just that he's all powerful not just that he's all knowing not just that he's ever present not just that he's great but that he is worthy that he is of higher and greater worth than you and I could ever comprehend. That He's greater worth than even His own throne in heaven. Of all the riches and all the treasures that might exist in heaven, and all the rewards that might exist in heaven, God is still of a greater infinite worth compared to all of it combined. So when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the very core of who He is. We're talking about the nature of his being we're talking about him as a person and his uniqueness his otherness his worth not based on what he's done but even before he had done anything now since this is the case this is why i have you open your bibles to isaiah 42 since this is the case the glory of god should therefore then mean something to us I've had you sit here the whole time with your Bibles open to Isaiah 42 for one verse. And I want you to mark this verse. I want you to mark it in your mind. I want you to mark it in your heart. I want you to mark it on the paper. Verse 8. God speaking says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I could spend tons of time here. I just want to highlight a few things. In this verse, God Himself connects His glory to His name. That is my name, my glory I give no other. Name is another reference to refer to self, to being, to personhood. God's glory connected to His personhood, connected to His nature, connected to His self, His being. And He says, I give it to no other. Now immediately there in the context, He says, nor my praise to carved idols. That's, that's kind of the context there in Isaiah as a, as a whole. Nothing else can suffice to replace the glory of God. Not any idol we fashion. Not any false god or false idea we follow. God alone is glorious. But there's a few things to note about him saying, I give my glory to no other. Number one, and I've mentioned this already. He cannot give his glory to another. Because nothing compares to him. He stands alone in his beauty, his grandeur, his greatness, magnificence, his splendor. There's not an ounce of anything in all of creation that will suffice to compare to God. So he cannot share his glory with another because nothing else is worth it. Again, Isaiah 40, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness will compare with him? Resoundly, nothing. No idol, no mental image, no religious institution, nothing. That includes the church. That includes you and I. 
You see, when humanity tries to get all the glory for themselves, live for their own glory, build up their own renown, their own kingdom, follow their own agenda, they are in essence, in the highest technical way, usurping the glory that belongs to God alone. The highest of all sins. There is nothing in all of creation that deserves the glory that God alone has. But secondly, I want you to take note of this. He will not give His glory to another. Now you know me, I like to, to focus on the words, I like to split the hairs if I can. There may not be much difference between He cannot give His glory to another and He will not give His glory to another, but there is at least some difference between the two. He will not give His glory to another means He will not ever, for any reason, compromise on His greatness. Compromise on His uniqueness. Nor will He elevate anyone to His threshold of greatness. To be God, He must stand alone. That's what makes Him God. So not only does He not give His glory to another, He will not give His glory to another. He alone is worthy of such glory. Now, I'll come back to this verse in just a moment, but I I at least want to point it out here. It highlights the extreme significance of Christ in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, when it when the writer describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God. Talk about the significance of our Savior. My glory I will give to no other, and yet Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. Philippians 2, equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Okay, so all of that to come down to this point or this statement I made fun of the English dictionary for its lengthy definition it doesn't compare to mine the glory of God is the manifestation of his nature and his being it cannot nor will it be shared with anyone or anything It bears a unique importance because it is a constant reminder of the supreme otherness of God. There will be a test later. I mainly want to highlight that last phrase. It bears unique importance because it is a constant reminder of the supreme otherness of God. When you and I contemplate, read about, consider the glory of God, we ought to be forced to realize this one is far greater, far higher than I. And He's not just high in distance. He's not just different. He is totally distinct from me. Glory of God means He is far above us, church. So real quick, why why did this matter to the reformers? That may seem unnecessary, but it's really an important question to ask. Mainly because during the Reformation, nobody was questioning the glory of God. In fact, if there was any point of agreement between Differing viewpoints, it was that everybody knew God had and deserved glory. That really wasn't a question. And yet, the reformers go about espousing the glory of God alone. Above people, above institutions, above teachings, above countries, above the globe, above the universe, glory... To God alone. And and it becomes this overarching rally cry. This governing directive for everything that they did. Why is it such a big deal to them? 
if it wasn't a point of contention. Well, I would ask you to consider with me just their historical lives. What do you think the reason was for their suffering? They were being ostracized. They were living under the constant threat of death. Last week I told you it's because they loved the gospel. Why do they love the gospel? Because it saves? Now that's true. Somewhat selfish, but true. What about the other things? Why, why do you think they're willing to die for translating the Bible into their own language? Why do you think they're willing to die for teaching certain doctrines and convictions? Why do you think William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English in Britain, was betrayed by one of his workers, taken to the stake to be burned? And his last words were, God opened the eyes of the King of England. Not recounting his efforts. You see, everything they did, from defending the Scriptures alone to the Gospel to defending salvation by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, everything they did was for the glory of God alone. What explains the sacrifice of comfort, of safety and security and luxury? What about the um, sacrifice of personal reputation and public popularity and likability? How can a human being, when we have so, seemingly so embedded within us this desire to be loved and, and liked and please everybody else, how can we lay all of that aside and be scorned and hated and even maybe killed? My convictions aren't always that strong. My flesh is often weak. The driving force, the, the explained reason for God's people over centuries now being willing to lay down their lives in the face of a hostile, opposing world is that they care more about the renown of God than themselves. They love the Gospel because it glorifies God. They love the Scriptures. Because it glorifies God. They'll go to the stake. They'll go to the noose. They'll be tossed into a river. Continue confessing. Continuing teaching. Continuing sharing. Because it's the glory of God that led them to do so in the first place. The reformers had become like Isaiah. They had glimpsed God's glory. And they were changed by it. And as Isaiah said, here am I, send me. They say, here am I, send me. What a great logo for a shirt, right? What a great slogan to put on a bumper sticker on our car. But the truth of the matter is, we can talk it all we want. We can say, send me God, I'll do it. Send me here and I'll do this. None of that will ever happen until we have tasted and glimpsed the glory of God just like Isaiah did and just like the Reformers did. And when I say taste and see and, and live by the glory of God, I, I don't just mean being exposed to it. I mean being gripped by it. So that when you want to let go, it won't let go of you. I mean being burned by it. Melted by it. Scorched by it. So that you bear the scar of having been with God. You have tasted. You have glimpsed of this glorious uniqueness, this glorious other, this glorious God to such a degree that you don't bear just new flesh, you bear scarred flesh. Because He's burning away selfishness. He's burning away pride. He's burning away self-indulgence. He's burning away worldliness. Such deep impressions from God are the only things that keep His people from going back to the life they had before. 
It's not cleverly articulating doctrine. Paul says it's not words of eloquent wisdom. It's not flashing lights and new buildings and beautiful pulpits and good articulators. What makes the church the church, what keeps you and I professing the faith, what makes us endure to death, what preserves us to the end, and what helps us take the gospel to the lost in the face of hostility is not that we've made some commitment and signed a card, but that we have been burned by the blazing beauty of God's glory. Which reminds you is His ever-increasing, overwhelming, unrelenting, unwavering presence. And if you haven't set under the overwhelming presence of God, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You have no idea what it means to be born again. A new birth isn't a laborless birth. The presence of God in its overwhelming fashion brings sinners to a great humility. Forces them to confession. Strikes their heart like a lightning bolt with fear. Fear that if they do not fall to their knees in tears and in anguish and cry out like Isaiah, woe is me, I'm being untied, undone, I'm coming unraveled. If that isn't true, if you haven't been there and been there often, you're missing the presence of God. I'm convinced the church needs today people living off the fuel of that burning passion for the glory of God. Not for your platform and not for, for your influence and not for your retirement account and not for your kids or your grandkids or your marriage or whatever it else that it is that we place as our goals and our priorities and on our bucket list. Every Christian's bucket list should have one thing on it to die glorifying God. The reformers said the glory of God mattered because it was the driving force of everything they did. It's the driving force of Christianity. So why does this matter today? Well, I've already said it, but let me, let me come to a few other things very quickly. Number one, it matters today because this is who God is. He is glorious. And He's glorious because He's God. And he's God because he's distinct. And if that's how he is, if that's who he is, then we ought to know how to relate to him. We ought to know him. We are to worship him and serve him and share him. He is unlike all others in the highest degree. And yet. In all of his supreme otherness condescended in His Son to deal with our sin that we might be with Him forever. The glory of God matters today because it shows us the depth of God's love for us. And a God so holy and so perfect and so pure and so other and so glorious would care about us at all whatsoever. It can only be explained by a glorious holy love. Secondly, why does this matter today? It's because this is the goal of humanity. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins this way. What is the chief end of mankind? Answer, mankind's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Isaiah 43, 7, God speaking. He's talking about everyone. He says, everyone who's called by my name. And he says, whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. That's who we are, not just as the church. That's who we are as creatures. That's who we are as human beings. The age old philosophical question, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Why did God create us in the first place? He tells us, he gives us the answer to bring him glory. Fast forward to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 
verse 31. Paul almost adds this on at the end of his argument in that chapter, but this is what he says. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. From the mundane things of life, ordinary common things of eating and drinking, to that comprehensive word, whatever, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Every decision, every day of your life, every, every time you choose what you're eating, every time you spend money, it's to be done for the glory of God. Every resource you possess, from small to great and all in between, is to further your agenda as a God-glorifying creature. Now you might have a legitimate question here. If God's glory is based on His nature and not His acts, then how do we glorify Him? And if God is God and therefore lacks nothing, then doesn't giving Him glory imply a lack in glory and that He needs or wants more? Thus, the question, what does it mean to glorify God? Well, first, it does not mean you add anything to God. He is full and complete in and of Himself. He needs nothing from us. Second, and the Bible talks about you and I glorifying God, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. It simply means to expose and reveal God's glory that already exists. You're to eat in such a way that reveals God's glory. You're to drink, you're to drive your car, clip your toenails, brush your teeth, comb your hair, share the gospel. To reveal God's glory. You reveal it first in believing in His Son Jesus. Remember Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. You want to glorify God? It starts first with believing on His Son. Nothing brings God more glory than His Son. And as we devote ourselves to His Son, as we immerse ourselves in His Son, after we lift up and exalt His Son, we bring Him glory. Secondly, once you have believed, how do you bring God glory? It's by living according to the glorious God. By His standard, by His character, by His directive, by His commands, not by the things of the world. You and I, we don't add to God's glory. In fact, if every one of us were annihilated right now by the snap of His finger, He would not ever be any less glorious. Instead, when we glorify God, we are revealing to the world around us the glory of God that already exists. We're doing what we were created to do. Reflecting and mirroring that glory. What an awesome privilege you and I have. That as finite and broken and even corrupted by sin as we are, we might, we might reflect God's glory back to Him. Enjoy the benefits of that glory. Show others the grandeur of that glory. But it only comes if you first turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust in Him alone for salvation. Father, this subject today was vast. Hard to do it justice. But we do know one thing. One simple thing that is true for now and for all eternity. You are glorious. And we want to reveal your glory in everything that we do. We want to relate to the glorious God and worship the glorious God and serve the glorious God and share the glorious God. We want Your glory to be the driving force of everything in our lives. Forgive us when we make our lives all about ourselves. Help us instead to make it all about You. Even as we enjoy the good things of Your creation, let us do so with gratitude and praise to You. O 
Oh Lord, I pray for those who are lost this morning that perhaps today was the first time they were confronted with your grandeur and your glory. And maybe by the grace of your spirit working in their hearts, they've come to realize that it's not true of them. That they need a savior. They need to be made right with you, reconciled to you. That is the only way they can begin to bring you glory. Let today, O oh Lord, be the day of their salvation. Let pride crumble to the ground. Drive them into the arms of your son. Give them faith and confession. For those of us who have been born again. Grow our adoration of you. Clarify our purpose to live for you. And help us in all things at all times to glorify you. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. <laughs>